Turn your Bibles to two passages. Our regular course of preaching has been First Peter. We'll start. I mean, First John, rather. We'll start there. Preaching on First Peter. So need someone on the line on, on, on the subject of Peter. We'll start in chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 12 through 17 in 1 John, then we'll turn over to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, and we'll read an account of the resurrection of Jesus. Give your attention to the reading for the Word of God. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God, abides forever. And then John's uh, Gospel, chapter 20, beginning, 20 uh, 21 rather, the last chapter of John's Gospel, beginning at verse 1. That might have been. <laughs> mm -hmm. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he re revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, out his, put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. 
And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Heavenly Father, bless to our understanding the reading and the application of your infallible and errant word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my sermon this morning is The Meaning of the Resurrection. And my hope is in preaching this message that you will, under, you will understand exactly what it means and you will appropriate it, uh, it uh, personally. I be deliberately began with uh, the, the passage that we are preaching from in series, uh, verses 12 through 17, where the same John who writes the Gospel of John is many years later, many years later, uh, at least 30 years later, perhaps more, uh, writing uh, the application of the gospel that he had written. It is an astounding thing. He is an older man writing in retrospect to younger men, a beloved apostle, father of the church, telling, uh, uh, giving explicit instructions on how the gospel is to apply to daily life. And no doubt, and you can just sense when he's writing this epistle how he is hearkening back to his time with Jesus. John's gospel, over, over a third of John's gospel is devoted to the last uh, three days of Christ's earthly ministry. Beginning at, at um, uh, the end of chapter 11 and, and the beginning of um, rather the end of chapter 12 to the end, to the 21st chapter, a large part that we've read today. He is, he is focusing on what Jesus taught his disciples in, in these last hours. It is concentrated truth for us to understand. And you encourage you on this Lord's Day to read through all the Gospels, the endings of all the Gospels, and you will find the incredible events that, that uh, surround um, the uh, sacrifice of Christ, his uh, arrest on trumped up charges by the religious authorities who wanted him out of the way before the Passover celebration, uh, the, uh, the, um, the duplicity of Pilate who could find no guilt in him and, 
and him trying to pass him off to the uh, Herod, to Herod, the the uh, puppet king installed to rule over the Jewish uh, state, and and uh, Herod uh, sending him back, and Pilate finally, out of frustration, dealing with the uh, with the authorities, ordering him to be put to death. And so we have in this famous confession that we confess today this strange personage of Pontius Pilate who is the Roman authority who passed the death sentence on Jesus in order to appease the mob, the mob that had turned so suddenly from adulation on Palm Sunday and hanging on every word he taught in the temple during that week and on the Mount of Olives, turning to hate and reviling. And all of his close disciples, including his most beloved disciples, deserting him. The only ones who stood by him were the women, Mary Magdalene, who is the first to appear at the grave. And we read about her appearance there and how she discovers the empty tomb and then reports it. And then he begins to appear to all the disciples, to Thomas, the doubter, who wouldn't believe it until he saw it himself. And then, and then again uh, in Jerusalem. And all those events are recorded in the Gospels. And sometimes we miss the place of John's record here. I, uh, I know I'm dangerous because I just got back from Israel, but, uh, but it strikes me really uh, hard that he's not in Jerusalem here in this passage that we've read this morning. Jesus appears at the Sea of Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee, which is by car to uh, over two-hour drive from Jerusalem today. That's quite a journey. We're not told exactly when, but several days, obviously, after that event, they go back. Even they're, they're no doubt in shock. They've seen Jesus appear uh, to them in person. Uh, they've even handled him. He's uh, had uh, close fellowship with him in his resurrected body. And here they go back uh, to, to uh, what they know, processing it, fishing on the boat, pushed out on the big lake that's called the Sea of Tiberias here. And then they hear, and they go back to fishing, and they fish, which is a common experience for many while they're fishing. They fish all night, and they catch nothing. And the one who made the lake, made the fish, tells them, using the same language that John later uses to teach his disciples, children. He dresses them as children. Have you, do you have any fish? And they said, no. And what should have been their first clue, he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And they did. And they found this huge 
quantity of fish. What is the meaning of Jesus' resurrection? What does it mean to you personally? This is what John is doing in his epistle. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. The resurrection, first and foremost, means that your sins, if you're a child of God, it means that your sins are forgiven. Yes, Jesus paid the price for sins on the cross. He paid the full sin debt that we owe, that you and I owe God. He did it on the cross when he and he did it to the uttermost when he cried out, it is finished. He drank the full drought of the wrath of God that we deserve. And he did it on behalf of every one of God's elect children. And yet, we need to understand that the death of Christ without the resurrection of Christ is meaningless. That's what the Apostle Paul says in verse Corinthians 15. If the dead is not are not raised and Christ is not raised, and if that's true, then you are still in your sins. It is the resurrection of Jesus that vindicates his death and shows his victory over the grave. So the resurrection means that we who have put our faith and trust in him are forgiven, completely forgiven. Second, the resurrection means that the evil one, the devil himself has been defeated two times in 1 John chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He writes to the fathers, he writes to the young men that they have overcome the evil one. The devil is a real entity. He is a real personage. He was one of the angelic beings that God created, and we know uh, this from the scriptures that he led the rebellion against God in heaven and he fell to earth. We don't know the exact time frame of when that fall of, of Satan and his minions occurred. Many scholars, Bible scholars have speculated it, it occurred exactly at the time of the creation of a man. And they fell into that perfect world. And the devil went after the crown of God's creation, Adam and Eve, mankind. And that beautiful paradise that God had created for them and their posterity was lost. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and immediately their eyes were opened when they succumbed to the temptation 
that when, it, when they ate of it, they would be like God. And that's been the devil's play with humanity ever since. What Jesus went up against, when he went up against the forces of religion in Jerusalem, when he went up against the forces of the, the petty tyrant Herod, and his minions, and when he went up against the mighty Roman Empire and their representative Pontius Pilate, he was going against the devil's work. We need not fear the devil. He has been defeated. He's been defeated from the beginning. The promise, the promise of the gospel comes immediately after the fall. The first uh, curse that God issues is against the devil in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and you, devil. And one day he will crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. When Jesus' feet were nailed to the cross, when his hands and feet were nailed to the cross, when the spear pierced his side, and he finished his life on earth, he cried out, it is finished. That work of redemption was accomplished. He crushed his bruised heel crushed the head of Satan. And this is the great story of the gospel. But he does not remain on the cross. He is brought down. He is buried in a rich man's tomb in accordance of the prophecy. And on the third day, in accordance with the prophecy that he, he foretold in the scriptures that he was moved to write through the Holy Spirit as the eternal word of God, redemption was fully accomplished. The resurrection means that the devil and his minions have been defeated. That's why John writes... John, his beloved apostle, the one that he loved, that he was especially near to. You have overcome the evil one. If you're a child of God, you, you do not need to fear the devil. If you, if you know the Lord Jesus, you do not need to be afraid. The third thing I'll point out from verse 17 of 1 John 2 is that the resurrection means that we will live forever. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus will live forever in a body. This world will end and the things in it will, will end. No matter how great or how mighty or powerful they seem, they will end. All those mighty uh, projects of mankind, all those wonderful works of art, all those incredible buildings, they'll be overthrown. 
everything in this world that has any substance will be burned up completely at the coming of Jesus. The only thing that will last forever are those who are found in Christ. Those who are outside of Christ, they will live forever too in a resurrected body in eternal destruction. That's what the Bible plainly teaches. But for the one who puts their faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, there, there needs to be no fear because Jesus paid the full price for sins. Whoever does the will of, of God by putting your faith and trust in him and seeking to be his disciple needs never to fear anything in this life. If you've been given a physical body in this world, the Bible plainly teaches that you're going to you're going to live for, forever. Period. You're either going to live forever in a resurrected, glorified body that is in Christ, or you're going to live forever in a humiliated, shameful body of judgment. We sometimes think about the resurrection that's only for believers. The resurrection from the dead. Uh, it tells us that everyone will be raised in a body and stand before God. The resurrection of Jesus is the promise that we will live forever. And it will be it will mean it means that we will live forever in a body. The question for each one here today is will you live forever in him? Are you will you live forever In the shame and the humiliation and the separation from God in a body, which is hell. We live forever and be in his presence and glorify him and exalt him? Or will you turn away and experience his righteous judgment for sin? That's what the resurrection means. It's more than just we get to go to glory with Jesus. It means everyone who rejects Jesus will be judged outside of his righteousness. But for the one who believes and puts their faith and confidence in him, the resurrection means that God has made an abundant provision for us. We were just talking about that word abundance that Paul in, um, in, in the Sunday school class that Ross Hannah took over from Jeff. We talked about Titus 3 and, and, and uh, uh, God's uh, abundance provision for sins. What a, what a blessed passage. But um, here in John's Gospel, we see that God promises his, his disciples that their life is going to be one of abundance. And he demonstrates it with this 
this incredible event that is repeated from when Jesus first met them and called them to be disciples. This superabundance catch of fish, and it records this exact number of fish. And if you ever want to be entertained by speculation and read all the commentaries on what it means that he called 153 fish, I would just say, I think it means a great number of fish. <laughs> Large ones, it said. Big fish, it says. If you've ever caught one big fish, you're, you know how exciting that is. But 153 big ones. It means that, that Jesus didn't come to just like and, and, be and die and be raised from the dead just to, to help you slip by. He came that you would have an abundant provision for life eternal with God. They're fishing. And, and on the seashore, they hear someone calling them. Have you caught any fish? And when they cast the net out again, they caught this great quantity. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, by the way, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it, he he did, the, he, he did a crazy thing. He put on his coat and jumped in the water and began to swim about 100 yards because he was with Jesus. Jesus had said earlier in chapter 10, verse 10, I am, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. But an abundant life. And that word abundant there means super abundant. Abounding beyond your conception. I have come that you might have an exceedingly joyful, wonderful life here and forever. That's what this catch of fish means. Then they have breakfast. Now, fish for breakfast. It's a thing in Israel still. I, I'm amazed. But that's what they have. And they have an abundant feast because Jesus meets with them. Note John's note in verse 14. This is the third time. This is the third time he comes to them. Again, it's not in Jerusalem. It's not around the events that... Uh, that were there was so much trauma. The, I, I, the Holy Spirit deliberately uh, moved them up to Galilee, so there would no be no doubt that this was the resurrected Christ. And my last point is this: the resurrection means we must follow Jesus. If we are His disciple, if we are born again. Child of God, we must follow Him. It's strange to me the name. It, you know, bless the Catholic Church. They built a they built a building over every event of the life of Jesus in the Middle East. There are hardly any Catholics, but there are a lot of Catholic church buildings. 
And so one of the things they've done is somewhat preserve those places, and that's a, that is a blessing. The church they built here at this place is called the Church of the Primacy of Peter, and we had the privilege of being there. And I thought, why do they call it, why is Peter the primacy? Because in this passage that's talking about this, it's John who Jesus loved best. John writing the gospel, the Holy Spirit let him write that. So, so why is Peter considered the, the, the uh, and I think it's because of the question. In verse 15, do you love me more than these? I may be wrong about that. I'm just guessing. Do you love me more than these? And Peter doesn't say he loves him more than these other disciples. He simply says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my lambs. Tell them the truth about who I am. If God has saved you, by his grace, from a life of sin and degradation, then you want to tell other people about it. You want to share your faith. You want to share your life with them. And you want to see them come to Christ and grow in grace. That's the, that should be your first instinct if you are a child of God. I've been forgiven. God has saved me. He's given me abundant life. I want to share it with other people. And that's exactly what he's telling Peter. If you love me, you will feed my lambs. It's not, this is not anything new. David, when he committed the shocking sin of adultery, the shocking sin of murder, the shocking sin of lying about it all, he, the Holy Spirit has him write Psalm 51. And he writes uh, these words, Lord, after I after I turn, I want to teach sinners about you. Who better to tell other sinners who are in desperate need of forgiveness and grace than a fellow sinner? And that's exactly what Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus commissions Peter to do. Feed my sheep. Shepherd my flock. Take care of them. We are saved and given a resurrected body to show the glory of God in forgiveness. We are one beggar of grace telling other beggars for grace where to find bread, the bread of life. Do you know that grace this morning? Do you know the power of the resurrected Christ? Have you put your faith and trust in him to deliver you from sin and death and hell forever? If not, I urge you to do so now. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the resurrection. We thank you that our Lord Jesus did not shrink back from one moment, that he set his face steadfastly to go to the cross. Father, so many mock and deny Jesus today. May, may there be no mockers or scoffers here. May the, may the reality of the resurrection be revealed to each one through the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the result be eternal life. 
Father, in the body that you made us in. We pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.